Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Rogue News in the morning. Today's a special broadcast. Uh, usually, every Friday, you can hear Velas, but Velas is going to be here today. Why? Because there's so many things going on, and it is happening at a breakneck speed that we just can't contain the man to just a Friday show for an hour. He's got to be back on because there's so much things to cover. Also, as a special treat, this Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, Andre Martinov will be on. So make sure Sweet. you are locked and loaded for that. It's going to be a rock, rocking and rolling good time. And without further ado, the Dark Raven of the Deep State joins us. Fellas, what's up, buddy? How are you? Good morning, gents. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. Uh, cool. I'm, I'm very elated that uh, we were able to, uh, to, to get some, um, some baby formula from Germany. <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad because of that. I'm, I'm glad that uh, Biden has signed us up to the uh, WHO uh, interference in our sovereignty, which is just in time for monkeypox. Uh, I'm happy about that. I'm elated that our government, which loves us and is so benevolent, has procured tens of millions of doses of monkey packs vaccine, which they had ready to go out of nowhere. They can't get baby formula. Yeah, you know, some place you're having shortages on on, 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 on on a myriad of different food staples. Some states are out of gasoline, but monkeypox vaccines ready and rocking and rolling, ready to go, man. I'm what a time we're living in. There, yeah, I we're I'm probably going to be rewriting my entire Friday show by the time we get to Friday because I'm yeah. <laughs> keep looking at my content going. Now, nothing crazy happened further on that topic until I can get to Friday. Please yeah. don't make me rewrite this. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just this morning, the Davos folks were publicly stating that we should not let nation states get th these were their exact words, folks. We should not let nation states get in the way of the pain that will be coming as we transition the global economy. These these guys are such morons. I mean, they're literally living in a. They haven't built anything. I want you to think about this. These are men who've never worked a real job in their entire lives. These are men who've never ran a business, created a company, created any product or service that is of any worth. But men that have been in academia their entire life, guys like Klaus Schwab, and these guys who couldn't run a lemonade stand whose only track record is breaking things, is promising to transition us through the pain. There's going to be nothing but pain. There is no solution on the other end of this, fellas, it seems like. Well, chaos sometimes tends to correct things. We'll see. Um, but as we always say, folks, stay tuned. Keep your powder dry. Keep your swivel on. Because uh, I've on too. Yeah, well, and I've got I've got two items for Friday that uh, my thanks to uh, folks in the audience for reminding me of two uh, memory hole items I had completely forgotten about, including uh, we're going to have a little discussion on Friday about what is the relevance of Dr. Mary's monkey to what we're dealing with right now. Some of you know what that is. So with that, today's show is a little unusual. I mentioned this last Friday. Um, we're going to get into the ancient world today. Um, 
So I'm just going to roll because we got we got a lot of content and it's my my normal kind of narrative, everybody. I'm trying to provide a primer. Uh, this topic is is immense. Um, we're going to walk through the field of alternative history mm-hmm. and anthropology. Uh, right. This type of research is sometimes known as prehistorical catastrophe theory. Mm. Um, I've been studying this for 30 years. I'm not kidding. So this will be uh, a primer on a handful of researchers because there's a ton of them. And the main points of this kind of um, work, uh, <laughs> very funny Balash guy. I did not have inappropriate relations with that monkey at the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did not have inappropriate relations with that uh, chimpanzee at the zoo. It wasn't me. <laughs> so uh, what this refers to is... Uh, this kind of prehistory or this topic matter is just prior to and immediately following the last ice age, roughly 10 to 12,000 years ago. And in my own kind of work in this area, uh, there's considerable literature, not just books, but also uh, academic papers and things. I've attended conferences. I've had discussions with people who are researchers in this field. Um, Strangely enough, there are some think tanks and government research groups who are also very interested in this topic. Uh, I've also been to a number of ancient sites, uh, including Mexico, Peru, Belize, Scotland, uh, as well as some mound sites throughout the United States. And in the case of those, the Cahokia site in Illinois, the Hopewell Mounds in Ohio, as well as Hopi and Zuni sites in the Southwest. So there's a lot here. Probably going to have another show on this later uh, because there's just so much to cover. And I agree with the statement made by the author and researcher Graham Hancock that humanity is a species with amnesia, unquote. The other thing, too, is a note of caution, because I know this topic can sometimes lead us into the whole realm of the History Channel Ancient Aliens series. And as I've mentioned previously, I did meet Giorgio Tsoukalos uh, at the Paradigm Symposium back in 2012 up in Minnesota, along with Eric Von Daniken. I also had had uh, spoken to Von Daniken at a, at a uh, talk he gave in Kentucky in the 1990s. And as I've said before, they're both very funny guys. They have a good sense of humor about the ribbing they take from other people. Um, or, or their research, shall we say, into outside influences. I'm not here today to either support or discredit that work. That's just not on our agenda. Um, the other thing, too, about the researchers in this field is, unlike traditional academics, they actually have the courage to challenge their own theories. Uh, they tend to try their best to be focused on the truth and not on tenure. Um, so they have been horribly uh, attacked, both in the media and ridiculed by academics. And there have been a number of cases where people who have been criticized have been uh, redeemed, shall we say, years, years later. So I'm going to start with a couple of the key folks in this field. The first is Graham Hancock. He's fairly well known. He's yeah. one of the big big names in the field. His last two books, to me, were probably some of his best. Uh, one that was published in 2015 called Magicians of the Gods. And then in 2019, Great a book, book called America Before the, the Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. Both books so, are fantastic. I have those. They're, they're very good. I recommend people pick them up. Good they're very good. His his earlier books and his earlier work is what's, you know, what's... Graham's main focus in what he does. His early work tended to focus on the degree of similarity about various ancient sites around the world. Um, not just pyramidal you know, uh, structures, but very advanced astronomy and mathematics incorporated into their designs, which for him often indicated that there was either greater communication among geographically separated ancient societies, or you had a single society or societies that had influenced uh, these people in the ancient world. His most 
recent work uh, kind of boils down into three areas. The first is, is and you're going to hear this term frequently and also when I do a follow-on show to this, there's something known as the Younger Dryas. What is that? Well, that's a geological reference or geological period of time that geologists and others use. It's the boundary period around the beginning and the end of the Ice Age, roughly 10, 12,000 years ago. And for Hancock, uh, he and others have gotten into what is now believed to have been two waves, if you will, of planetary impacts separated by about 1,500 to 2,000 years. Uh, the second main point of what he's dug into is most of the world's ancient sites are more complex uh, in their purpose than realized. And key among those features is uh, many of them, if not all of them, are in fact very long duration calendars. That there's a lot of redundancy in these different sites. They they all kind of communicate the same thing, but in different ways. And part of that that second piece of Hancock's latest work is is he believes this was a global undertaking by survivors of the last ice age to warn future generations that this is actually a a pattern uh, in the Earth's history. Uh, and his third takeaway is is we may see this uh, in our in our lifetimes. Next up is Freddie Silva. Uh, he's an author and a lecturer. He focuses in two areas. He gets into ancient history, but he's also real big on spiritual understanding, the human journey with the spiritual, etc. Um, he focuses on ancient sites being intended to focus on both hidden knowledge as well as places of spiritual reflection, etc. Uh, his main focus is, at least on the ancient history piece, he tends to go deep into certain topics beyond what other researchers have done. Certain researchers, researchers kind of deal with some of these things at a high level. Freddie will pick like one area and go deep. So to me, Freddie Silva is the kind of guy you read after you've read some of Hancock's work. You kind of need the, the primer or the baseline that Hancock or others will provide you. One of Silva's comments that he often brings up in many of his books is, when most of the world's belief systems or religions, if you will, are the sorts of things that can be conducted just in a field or with a simple structure, no structure at all, why were all of these sites across so many different cultures and so many different spans of time so overbuilt? Uh, why were they made so permanent? Uh, religions may have played a role, but that wasn't their, their sole purpose. The other thing is, is he tends to point out the kind of confusion that's caused because a lot of these sites were occupied by people later after the original builders left. So we tend to attribute the construction to those we knew were living there at the time, case in point, you know, uh, the Aztec civilizations in South America. Um, one of his other areas of specialty is, is he tends to conduct a lot of interviews with native peoples about their, their legends. Uh, I give him a lot of credit for going to the source, if you will, of tribal groups around the world for whom academics either kind of tend to ignore or kind of give a limited perspective on on those those folks. Um, in later years, Silver has started digging into more about where the locations of pre-catastrophe civilizations may have been located and where they went uh, after after their their sites had been destroyed. Next up is Randall Carlson. This is a guy who sounds like Jesse Ventura and looks like Santa Claus. He, uh, he hosts a program called Cosmographia. You can find him on YouTube. He also has his own website. One of the comments he often talks about is, is his focus on what he calls the rebooting of civilization from catastrophic events rather than a slow linear progression of human development. His area that he's really carved out for himself is he tends to focus on geographic proof of planetary impacts and so on. Geology is his, is his big area. 
And he focuses on two main areas about the Younger Dryas. The first is, is that Carlson has built a huge amount of data on multiple locations around the world, uh, proving that these are sites where you had planetary impacts who, who took place, even taking into account erosion that led to the beginning of the, uh, the Younger Dryas period. Um, and his data is backed up by you know everything from deep uh, earth core samples, ice core samples, ground penetrating radar, et cetera. He's probably one of the most uh, profound folks on the whole geography as or geology aspect of this. The second is, is he's conclusively shown in North America, and by that I mean Canada to Mexico, where the earth was completely, like at a continental level, was completely reshaped. Now, traditional geology will state that earth changes were caused by post-ice age events like what's known as ice dams. And basically, as a, as a giant glacier would melt, and I'm oversimplifying, you would tend to kind of get a bowl in the center where there's melted water, but the water's being held in by what they call an ice dam or the wall of, of uh, a retaining wall of the glacier itself. So traditional geology has said, well, when those dams would break, you'd have a huge amount of water that would flow out of the, flow out of the glacier, and that's what caused a lot of the earth changes and that it was a slow melting process. Carlson has argued differently. Um, and he's, he was on Joe Rogan back in 2015, which also kind of got him more in people's, people's radars. Um, his argument is, is that the melting of, the, of the, uh, the glaciers, especially North America, was not over hundreds or thousands of years. He believes it actually took place over five to 10 years. And the reason why is, is that second wave of impacts the first wave struck mostly um, land masses. So it threw up a lot of debris, basically created the equivalent of a nuclear winter. The second impact struck the oceans about 1,500, 2,000 years later. And that released a lot of, of energy and heat and moisture into the Earth's atmosphere. And that's why he's saying that the, the melting was incredibly rapid. And of course, in the case of North America, you have to remember that some of those ice sheets over what is modern-day Canada, the United States, were, were more than a mile thick. So that is a tremendous amount of water being, being released. So his comment is, is that the amount of water released by um, glaciers slowly over time is not enough to have recarved what is modern-day you know, Oregon, Washington State, uh, Wyoming, some of those, those other areas. His comment was is that the amount of water you had released was on par with the mass of the Pacific Ocean rolling into that part of the United States and then and then receding. That's that's why you have those types of earth changes. And again, traditional academics fight him on that because they'd have to rewrite everything they've ever done. Now, there's another gentleman named Alan Alford, and he's not as widely known. And just to show you, there isn't agreement. Uh, that there's even disagreement in the alternative community. None other than Graham Hancock once described one of Allen's books as, and I quote, possessing no merit and is an impenetrable and pointless muddle, unquote. <laughs> um, Allen was like a lot of folks in the alternative field that I've come across. He was a guy that, uh, British, and he had parents that traveled around the world. I think one of his parents was a, was a diplomat for the British government. And so growing up, he had a chance to see a lot of different places around the world, different ancient sites and temples and things. And it kind of got him, got him hooked on this topic. 
Alan's focus tended to be that the world's ancient belief systems were not based on flesh and blood gods, but analogies to a celestial catastrophe in the past. Now, he picked that up from another researcher, an astronomer named Michael von Flandern, who I forget exactly when Flandern, Flandern did his work. It may have been the late 70s or the 80s. But von Flandern's work was as he had what he called the exploded planet hypothesis. He believed that a planetary body where the, the asteroid belt is today between Mars and Jupiter had come apart, and that Mars, in fact, was a moon of this world. And yeah. that's why, historically, you have these references to Mars being the bringer of destruction, the god of war, the list, the list goes on. And to, cre to Alfred's credit, because a lot of folks in the alternative field have gotten themselves caught in the weeds a little bit about... They've got a good solid theory, but there's a world of people asking, yeah, but how do we get there? Alford doesn't get into the weeds on that. And what I mean specifically is, is that he's even said himself, how would it be possible for ancient civilizations to be able to detect such an astronomical event? He doesn't really concern himself with that. He left that, he left that to others. But his main area of, of focus had been on the ancient Egyptian belief system. And what he believed was the religious beliefs of Egypt actually being kind of a, a morality tale, if you will, about this destructive event inside our own solar system. Now, unfortunately, Alfred uh, died at a young age in 2012. I was very bummed out when I heard he passed away. He was in Asia, and I he <laughs> talk about doing what you love. If if from what I've read, he was at a at a site in in Asia where he was doing some research, and he fell off. A temple or something where he was he was working. So as the old saying goes, he he died doing what he loved. Wow. Um, his last book that he published was called Pyramid of Secrets. Now some of his other books, which I own, are admittedly much like Graham Hancock said, they're very deep. Unless you're somebody who really gets into the nuances of of Egyptian mythology and so on, you can really get lost in some of his books. His last book, though, thank God was uh, Pyramid of Secrets, was, was a very clearly written book, very, very easy to read. Um, but the thing that really, and this is not the first time this has happened, the thing that really took, took my attention about his book was he published it in 2007, and he had predicted discoveries, very specifically where, of cavities in the Great Pyramid of Giza, who in the last two to three years have only been confirmed by using very advanced and radical new uh, sensing techniques using muons and other things. The the cavity that's right above the the entrance doorway uh, that Arab scholars had had used to break into the to the pyramid uh, in the ancient world. The other one being further uh, inside the structure. But uh, Alford had predicted exactly where those would be many years before, and the reason why he pointed to those areas was based on ancient beliefs and very subtle pyramid interior features left by master stonemasons. He's got in his book a number of uh, pictures and things where he'll show a series of kind of odd marks or stones that seem out of place, and then a certain number of paces or a distance past that point, and then, you know, wherever, up or down or to the left or the, to the right, would be where these cavities would be. And his... His theories were that that these hidden chambers were not just potentially storage areas for hidden knowledge, but were part of ancient mystery schools of initiates and in their and their self discovery. Um, and I noted I noted the comment there. Uh, yes, Tiamat Hobo sermons and somebody had Velikovsky. Um, 
Belkovsky's another one of those people that kind of helped get things going. And then, and then after that, other folks picked up the torch. Um, so the main takeaways from these authors um, regarding the planetary impact topic, um, we've got a number of legends around the world on that, on that topic. We have legend after legend globally describing the same kinds of stories, whether they be flood myths or the world destroyed by fire, et cetera. There's legends that talk about flaming dragons crossing the sky, bringing destruction. We have other legends describing uh, great serpents with long tails who left death everywhere upon the world. Um, we have other legends that talk about gods descending from the heavens and making war upon the earth with each yeah. other. Um, from every single ancient manuscript, from what you find in uh, the uh, you know in, in in the Western Hemisphere to the Bhagavad Gita in, in, in ancient India to it, it, it's incredible. It's all yes. over the world. And the other thing that, that came to me years ago was, is, is to my knowledge, <laughs> there's not a civilization anywhere in the world at any point in history, even those that are extinct, not one who's ever had anything positive to say about a comet. Um, there has to be a reason for that. Uh, there's an extensive stretch of cultures across human history who all dread the sign of a comet and it potentially bringing flood and fire. And that kind of begs the question, what was so horrible and planetary in nature? It had to be handed down as a race memory for, for generations. Even uh, Nostradamus, who you can, you can take or take interest in or not, um, Nostradamus even used to warn of great future events where the harbinger was the time when the comet will run. Um, many of these researchers believe the cause of the planetary impacts uh, caused in the last ice age or the driest period was due to a comet that had broken up uh, in our solar system many thousands of years ago. And we know those fragments today as the torrid meteor showers, which occur periodically. And the torrid, uh, you know, mass of, of material out there uh, tends to peak every 2,500 to 3,000 years as far as, as its activity in the sky. We know this from legends from more ancient peoples and especially uh, Chinese astronomers and so on. It's important to note, though, that the torrid meteors, that meteor cloud is what created the 1908 Tunguska blast that wiped out miles of Siberia during the Imperial Russian period. It was the Torids that produced the Chelyabinsk meteor in 2013 who caused the sonic booms and emitted huge amounts of energy that were picked up, picked up by people's, uh, what do you call it, uh, front windshield cameras in, in Russia when that, that event took place. Oh, yeah. Um, just this spring, it was also discovered that the Torids uh, are actually not two debris fields, but three. And the other takeaway on this, uh, on this topic is, is that when these fragments have entered the Earth's atmosphere, uh, which is typical of, of comet material rather than meteorites or similar. If you've got rock or metal, they'll, they'll strike the surface of the Earth. They, don't they tend not to explode in the air. But cometary material, because it's frozen gases and similar, they tend to create air bursts rather than a ground detonation, uh, which was usually, usually caused by ground impact. So air bursts tend to create a radically different outcome than surface strike. I hate to use this reference, but this is kind of like why uh, in U.S. strategic thinking when it came to our construction of nuclear weapons, in the beginning, everybody was trying to build bigger and bigger bombs because a lot of the detonators and related required the 
the warhead to strike the ground before it detonated. But an air burst can oftentimes be far more destructive than something striking the Earth's surface. So what clues do we have of prior civilizations? Um, number one, we've, we've got thousands of years of common global legends by civilizations who've never met with flood myths, celestial destruction, and then, very importantly, visitors who came later to help them rebuild. Um, there are a number of the world's languages that have certain markers or references in those languages who cannot be traced to the linguistic evolution of themselves or other groups near them. Uh, it's as though in the ancient past, these folks were picked up and moved from one place or, and moved to another. One of the examples of this is the Basque people in the Spanish-French border. There's elements in their language who have no parallel to neighboring peoples. And to this day, linguistics, uh, linguists and anthropologists are still trying to understand who really are the Basques? How did they get there? Because they have no correlation to any of the other peoples that live in that region. There are a number of different ethnic groups in Polynesia whose languages actually have more ancient uh, elements in them that are straight from the Middle East rather than other languages in the region. Again, people that appear out of place or as though they were kind of deposited there in the past. We have former racial groups like the Denisovans who've disappeared. Uh, due to the work of the Human Genome Project, now I know I spoke negatively of the Human Genome Project on the whole thing about global disease and research and so on. There was some good uh, out of that work as well. One of the things that came from the Human Genome Project was is they discovered multiple missing racial groups in our global DNA, which of course begs the question, what happened to them? Um, we also have examples in human genetics of things like people who have six fingers or six toes people with extreme height and other unusual traits. These are not genetic defects. These are recessive genes, begging the question, are these markers of other people's left behind that had different physical traits beyond just, let's say, things like skin color or other subtle subtle traits like eye or hair color? 100%. I mean, look at uh, the um, what they were uncovering recently in Paracas, Paracas, Peru, where you've seen those elongated skulls, right? Where the sagittal yes. suture lines are non-existent, the, the the cranial plates is not what you would find on a human skull. It's completely different. Internal scans and measurements of the of the, of the brain cavity are larger than what it is in a typical Homo sapien, much larger, about twenty to thirty percent more brain. So these things came from somewhere, man. It's it, 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 oh my god. I mean, all this stuff is hidden from us, fellas. It is. We're getting, and again, that's you know Hancock's comment about we're we're a a people with amnesia. There's and like I said, folks, I think, that I think we're called genetic amnesia. I think it was. Yeah, we're we're just uh, we're just scratching the the surface here. Um, there's a number of other other genetic features out there. There are peoples for whom who've been detected that have have much greater sensitivity in darkness in in the way they see. Again don't understand why that is the, their eyes look like like anyone's eyes anywhere in the world but if you you look more closely they have a different rod and cone set up in the eye they've got a few other tweaks in their in their genetic makeup that that beg the question why why is this here because this isn't an outlier um, academics for years have violently argued against any civilization being more than 10,000 year, years old contemporary historians wouldn't even hear of it because that bucked up against, you know, the standard narrative that's out there in every history book and every every school 
that teaches history that everything is a slow progression. Um, one of the think tank people I dealt with in Washington, we were talking this topic over, said, do you, do you really want to tell the global community that we've been through this a couple of times? You know, their, their comment was, is, you know, pe- people can't handle the fact their governments are incompetent. The last thing they want to hear is uh, we keep resetting the clock every, every few thousand years. Um, so the thing that blew that out of the door was Gobekli Tepli in modern day Turkey. Because when that site was discovered, even, even contemporary historians and anthropologists and other researchers had to admit that the site was older than 10,000 years. And that was a problem. They, they kept going down the road of, well, um, these were just nomadic farmers. And it's like, have you seen the lintels? Because it, it looks like a T, like a T at an angle. And there's a series of them in a circle. Um, then we discovered there were other sites. Because the, th- the thing about Gobekli Tepli is it's the youngest of these kind of Stonehenge-like circles. It's the youngest of them, and it's 15,000 years or older. There's sites being dug up right now, but they're still dusting, dusting off the, the material off the sites that are possibly older than 30,000 years. And you better believe that academia doesn't, doesn't want to hear that. Um, Graham Hancock, in one of his recent books, he, he dug heavily. It's been done by others, but he was probably the person who spent half a book on it. Uh, the mound-building societies in North and South America, sites from Illinois to Ohio to cave complexes in the Northeast United States, up in, up in the New England states, from New Mexico to Brazil and Bolivia. They all possess highly advanced geometric concepts and celestial alignments. There's something known as a squared circle, which is exactly that, a circle with a square around the outside of it. Um, many of these sites all incorporate that type of feature, um, but the alignments, the way they're constructed are almost the same, but yet across vast dif- uh, distances and different cultures and so on, which begs the question again, is always how. Um, and this isn't an organic discovery. This is like each of these people came up with that on their own. This is something that's been handed down. Um Another one that's popped up recently is, is there are creation and afterlife beliefs in the native tribes of North America who directly correlate to ancient belief systems. In the ancient afterlife uh, belief system of Egypt, there is a character or, or um, someone you may encounter in the afterlife called the skull splitter. Uh, they're a guardian on the journey through the afterlife. Uh, the Egyptians call it one thing. There's there's native tribes who call it something else. The point is, is they both have this this belief of this role played by this individual during during your journey in the afterlife. The researchers believe this is not a case of Egyptians coming to North America and causing that, but instead some other civilization or civilizations impacting both both groups. Multiple ancient sites around the world. Uh, I first started hearing about this one in the 1970s use a metal securing pin uh, in key locations in walls and other structures. Uh, from Ethiopia to Egypt, Peru to Nanmadal in the Pacific, these pins have been found inside the walls to help uh, secure the structures. With slight variations, they're almost always the same size. They're kind of shaped like a traditional dog bone shape, um, two kind of bulbous ends and then a thin metal uh, but then the biggest one, the metallurgy is almost the same, regardless of the civilization. It's a building technique that predates the Greeks and the Romans by several thousands of years. Um, we have 
multiple ancient sites around the world who deploy uh, construction techniques to avoid damage due to earthquakes or other environmental dangers in, in highly advanced ways. When I was in Peru, I saw a number of, of you know, because this is, this is as old as time. You conquer a people, you build your temple on top of their temple to show that your, your people are dominant. Um, every time there's a major earthquake in certain parts of South America, these Catholic churches fall apart and underneath is the original temple you know, by the Inca or whomever, still still in good shape. And the, the, the church is rebuilt until the next time there's another earthquake. But I've seen myself in museums and things in South America, how these walls were built. They're, they're similar to the techniques the Japanese use uh, in their high-rise buildings and similar to help manage uh, and prevent extensive damage during, during periods of, of earth movement or, or earthquake. We have the common thing about pyramidal pyramid-like designs globally. Now, you'll hear that discounted heavily by traditional archaeology and anthropology. They'll claim, well, that's just a very common shape. That's debatable. And pyramids globally replicate many sacred geometric principles, uh, regardless of time, distance, or culture. Um, More importantly, our uh, post-catastrophe narratives about the importance of holy and sacred mountains rising from the sea when the periods of destruction had ended. Uh, there's a number of researchers, uh, including Freddie Silva, who believe these sites may have, in fact, been storage locations for critical information for when these catastrophes had ended. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, and, it's pretty funny. Every single uh, uh, eschatological, apocalyptic, future-type prophecies and stories that are in ancient scriptures, they all talk about that in the, in those days, in the last days, flee to where? The mountains. It's always, yes. always, always talked about the mountains, the safety in the mountains. Well, there's even an, a, a line in in the Bible's chapter about about apocalypse, where where it it describes as each of the seven seals are opened, that that a line to the effect of of people will run to the caves and beg the caves to enclose them safely inside the mountain the way it, it happened in the ancient world or whatever. I remember when sure. I first came across that, I thought, wait a minute, what? What do you, what do you mean this has happened before? Um, the other thing about a number of ancient sites is, is that the best construction of those sites is often the oldest or original part of the, the location. Uh, later building activity as though people were trying to sustain or replicate what was created uh, previously. Again, when I was in Peru, more I saw some of this in Mexico, but Peru was where it really really leapt off the page. Um, You have sites like Ollante Tambo or Machu Picchu, where especially at Machu Picchu, you can see at the center part of the of the site, the construction there is so obviously better built than what came later. And even though later construction was still advanced. But you could, in my opinion, you could literally witness the knowledge is declining as time went on, not improving. Yeah. And that's counterintuitive to what history would tell us. The other thing, too, is when I say advanced, I don't mean things like a lack of mortar being used. I mean, for instance, like with Ollante Tambo, the central part of the construction at Ollante Tambo in Peru, it's at 10,000 feet, and they were using 40-ton rhyolite blocks. Rhyolite's a form of granite. Mm-hmm in the most inhospitable terrain you can imagine, but yet with immense weathering, a place that rarely gets rain at all, but yet shows to, to local native researchers in Peru, not North Americans, weathering that's thousands of years old. 
Right. And I later hiked past the quarries where those stones had been dug out because there were um, works that stopped in, in mid-construction or, or much as you've probably seen in Egypt, somebody would be building something and then, and then the obelisk would get broken. And it's like, well, we can't use this. We're going to have to go dig another one out. When I went past those quarries that were tens of miles away, the terrain between Oyan Tetambo and those quarries was what I jokingly describe as the land of the broken ankle. I mean, it is, it is unbelievably difficult terrain. And yet the, the, the description is, or the explanation is, well, these were moved with rollers. And it's like, there's no way. Uh, even if you tried to do it in the modern world, the air is so thin that even modern helicopters can't sustain the kind of lift for that kind of weight. Correct. So the well, other thing is... they did it, Velas, with uh, Hebrew slaves that they've imported right. from Egypt. And they put the uh, all those 40-ton blocks on rollers, fed coca leaves and cocaine to the Hebrew slaves, which empowered them to be able to use superhuman ability to transmute those massive stones to the very top of those construction projects, man. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's like the World Economic Forum with just wanting to move labor wherever it's needed. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> then, then another item that since has has expanded, and this this is the the underground cave systems again in Turkey. Uh, these have often been attributed to everyone from the Greeks to the Knights Templar, and ongoing research is only adding to the confusion. Uh, they were expertly carved to great depth. Uh, they could support thousands of people underground. Interestingly, many of them possess complex multi-door systems that were designed in a way as though they're trying to keep someone out. There are places in South America near um, the ancient Olmec sites in Mexico where if you travel to these places, you'll find an outer door that you have to kind of go through on your knees, essentially, then a secondary door that you got to go through a little lower, and then a third door that basically you have to crawl on your stomach to get through there with great rolling stones blocking them. Again, all the way in South America, a similar type of design where it is as though they're trying to keep somebody somebody out. The other thing is, is that at the deepest levels of those uh, caves in Turkey, there's no carbon residue from torches, which begs the question, how are they lit? Now, in the past 20 years or so, there are even more complex cave structures who have been found in China. The Western media, of course, doesn't cover much about the, the Chinese sites. Um, in the southwestern United States are legends of, of cave people or, or cave-dwelling people who periodically come out to save local tribes when cataclysms occur. Uh, local native tribes in the Southwest call them the red, the red ant people because they live underground. They're seen as guardians and protectors who, who will save these tribes whenever there's a disaster that strikes the earth. Um, all of these sites worldwide, including those that we probably haven't found yet, appear to be a series of global safe locations for long periods of survival underground for something cataclysmic, which begs the question, what? Because they're, they're all coordinated and they're all located geographically around the world. This isn't just a, a standalone location. There's another theory out there regarding why the immune systems of native peoples in the Americas were so kind of anemic when Europeans arrived. The standard theory is, is well, Europe Europeans were living in filth and had stronger immune systems 
than dispersed native peoples who didn't interact with each other as often, and therefore there was less disease. There's a counter theory out there that says that were these native people descendants from some kind of civilization who had somehow eliminated or almost eliminated disease? The modern equivalent would be if any of us in the Western world were to go to the Congo, your immune system wouldn't stand a chance at the Congo <laughs> given the kind of bugs that are, are oh, flying yeah. around down there. Uh, unless you had a ton of inoculations on that. Or you're like CJ and you have a very high blood alcohol volume. At that point, right. malaria, mosquitoes cannot even survive. <laughs> CJ, you want to come in Siege, he left us. He left, he left us. us. So there's there's a theory kicking around that that were these peoples in the Americas, the reason why their immune systems were so weak was they descended from from a people who at one time had Yes, it may be more than possible that the, that the going narrative is correct, that you, you put people in tight places with a lot of disease breaking out, it'll force your immune system to get stronger. But there's equally a theory that, that you may have people who are descendants of others who at one time had the ability to prevent disease in ways that either are similar to what we do today or in ways we don't understand. But by the time the Europeans got here, their immune systems had now been so weakened, uh, they didn't have, have a way to stand up to European diseases. So again, the concluding thought here is, is, of course, why does this matter? First is we cannot view planetary catastrophe as just ancient legend. Uh, the other is, is we've had several rather spooky celestial events the last 10 to 20 years, not just the uh, incident in, in Russia back in 2013. Um, the other thing, too, is two areas folks don't tend to talk about. I noticed somebody discussing one of these on the Discord channel this morning. Um, the first is, is is this thing about the pole shift, because we the poles are moving. They have moved in the past. We know that. Um, it does tend to cause a heck of a number on the Earth whenever we do have the magnetic poles shift. The other one that's keen in my mind also is, is, is the sun. We do not understand the sun to the degree that we believe we do. Uh, there's a probe out there right now that was specially designed with shielding and so on to be able to get far closer to the sun than we've ever done before. That every couple of days, I'm checking various astronomy websites where they they're completely throwing out talk about telling historical or, or academics focused on history to change their tune, trying try to get astronomers to take 20 to 30 years of their life and throw it over their shoulder. No, we were completely wrong. They're discovering things about the sun right now thanks to the work done by that, by that research probe that, that is taking us in whole new areas of science about, about the sun and its behavior. The other thing, too, people don't necessarily have much awareness of is we do have about 3,000 years' worth of Chinese data. Chinese astronomers did fantastic job monitoring and maintaining celestial records of comets and, and other uh, activity, including uh, solar novas and other things in, in other parts of the solar system. They also had very good data about the sun and droughts and, and other types of things, aurora borealis occurring in places that it shouldn't occur at certain times of year. The Chinese data actually is, is quite helpful. Again, in Western media, you won't really hear that story. But but I've spoken to enough people who've said, oh, yeah, we, we reference the, the Chinese data. But even still, that's two thousand three two to 3,000 years at most, and, and no indelicacy towards the Chinese. But that was that was visual observe, observation. That wasn't the type of equipment we've had at our disposal what the last fifty years or so. So there's a lot about the sun we still don't understand. And then and then the one that always raises some eyebrows. Um, 
The CIA does research things like this, as have high-end think tanks like RAND. Now, that begs the question, well, why would they do that? The official story is, is because study of how prior societies managed stress or downright catastrophe have important considerations. Not to be indelicate, if you're trying to overthrow a country or destabilize them, understanding their culture and similar based on both the current ancient world can be, can be very helpful. The one that tends to leap off the page, and this is rather controversial because there's two sides to this story, is an author named Chan Thomas. He'd published a book called The Adam and Eve Story that caught some attention from some people in the 1960s. And so he was invited to speak at the CIA about prior civilizations, catastrophes, and so on. Following his debriefing, the CIA bought up all the copies of his book and declared his work classified. Now, for years, that was a rumor until about two or three years ago when the CIA, you can go to the CIA website. Huh. They've, they've acknowledged, yes, we, de we classified his book. Now, you have to be careful because we're dealing with Langley here. They've said, well, we've declassified the documents and we've declassified his book. But there are folks out there who had his original book. And Chan Thomas did republish the book after the CIA bought up all the initial copies of his first release. And they've said, you know, say it with me, there's whole sections of the book that are missing. And that also the writing style of his second release of the book was very rough, uh, as though it was kind of intended to, to throw people off or make them not want to not want to read it. Um, the rumor was is that his theories about prior civilizations were considered too hot uh, to have out there in the public domain. And the other thing is, he isn't the only person where that's occurred. Uh, I shared with all of you uh, a book called Operation Darkheart. Is this uh, book the uh, the first book of Adam and Eve, or which one? Do you remember the title? Chan, yeah, Chan Thomas's his book is called The Adam and Eve Story. Now, as a as a reference point, now this has nothing to do with with the ancient world. Holy but, shit! You're not kidding, fellas. It, it took me directly to CIA.gov, bro. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so there, there was a, there was a book called Operation Darkheart by Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer. I'm holding it in my hand. And what happened was Schaefer wrote this book. What, you know, what's it about? Well, uh, he and a bunch of folks came up with interrogation techniques that do not re require torture. Uh, shocker. And secondly, they had an early uh, artificial intelligence application system that identified something like 75% of all the 9-11 attackers before the attacks took place in September of 2001 about a year, year and a half prior to it taking place. And Schaefer and his colleagues, uh, they published a book, and then even though the Defense Department had, agree had agreed to let it be published, somewhere somebody lost their head, and the Department of Defense and the CIA, say it with me, they bought up all the copies of the book. And then they threatened Schaefer. Schaefer had to go to court, and then it turned into... Uh, and Bill, I'm looking in your general direction. It turned into kind of a pissing match where it's like, well, why do you want us to ban the book? Well, we can't tell you. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, that's legal restraint of trade. There's a problem here. So what happened is, is um, Schaefer republished the book because I'm holding it in my hand. But as you as you thumb through the pages, there's whole sections in the book that are blacked out. And the Department of Defense and others told him, no, 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 don't don't black that out and he's like no i'm blacking it out uh what's your problem i mean the the content isn't there you can't hold the page up to a uh 
a, a light bulb and see through the back of it and read whatever is has been redacted. But even the index in the back has redactions. And he did that on purpose because, like Chan Thomas, he also had to cut whole sections of his book out. So this type of thing has happened before. And it isn't just Chan Thomas and the Adam and Eve story. It is not just Anthony Schaefer. There are countless examples of people who have, have tried to publish books or did publish books, and then out of nowhere, the machine came to life and said, wait a minute, no, 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 we're not having that. Uh, the other person, obviously, that that goes to is the gentleman I've mentioned on the memory hole, who is the former um, Homeland Security uh, leader who wrote a book about how U.S. intelligence and law enforcement was either uh, yes, Wayne Reck, pristine passport laying on the sidewalks. Um, that the former DHS leader, I forgot the gentleman's name, but but he had published a book where he said it was either by design that we let certain terrorists in the United States because somebody somewhere is running an op on the American people or our agencies are incompetent. And of course, neither of those went over real well. His first book, this, this DHS uh, former executive, was published and garnered a lot of attention. And then he was publishing a second book. And I've talked about this. He was publishing a second book. He was going to name names. He was getting into more, more specifics and say it with me. Found him dead on the side of the road. <laughs> the transcript of the book uh, is missing. Wow. So. Just making a point there that it and, and Chan Thomas is not the only person I've heard of. With, so what with do you think? Book. What do you think uh, was in this book, man? That the CIA literally shit the bed. The the take by some folks that are trying to be as calm about this topic as they can is is that Chan Thomas in the period of the nineteen sixties started putting some data together that is on par with what Graham Hancock or Freddie Silva or Robert Schock or fill in the blank a whole host of other people have come up with since. So there's some folks who say, well, even if, if Thomas had some stuff in his book that even right now we still don't know, unless, you know, suppose, <laughs> supposedly there's a couple of copies of his original book that are still out there that folks are, are holding on to for dear life. Uh, this, there is, are uh, this that I'm showing on the screen is the full 212 combined pages. The one from CIA is only like 57 pages. Right. I'll, I'll put the link in for the people right there. You could just click on it, download it yourself, read it at your own leisure. I don't know if this is the full, uncensored, complete, but the person who uploaded this book onto a, onto a Google Drive said that this is um, full 212 pages uncensored. So go through there's, the there's, Yeah, there's, a, there's another comment that's out there that of the 212-page copy, there's still another 50 pages that are missing. I believe it. The, the net of it, though, is, is based on, on the very high-level walkthrough I've done for all of us today. That for us right now, there's many authors who've who've stepped into this area, and and kind of like the Alan Alford gentleman I met, you know, some of their work uh, they went way off the reservation, no pun intended, and kind of needed to pull themselves back. But they they did tap into some stuff, and then we're we're standing on the edge of the cliff here because I don't want to go down that road, at least on today's show, which is there's always been the rumor that there's a number of ancient sites around the world where they, they actually have found whatever is stored at these locations. And whether it's collectors, whether it's, 
because that's that's a whole show in and of itself. I've even mentioned that on other programs I've done here on Rogue. That I've met some people that are real high end collectors and everything from antiquities to whatever, and that is a whole subgenre that would make uh, the World Economic Forum look tame by comparison. Um, you can't even imagine how crazy the world of rare collectors are, whether it's artworks that, that were never found at the end of World War II, whether it's certainly antiqu- antiquities or whatever. But, uh, and you know, you'd be, be sure to grab the salt shaker and sprinkle in the Vatican and all of this. There's, there's rumors out there that, that over time people have discovered uh, records and various things, you know, the, the famous uh, Hall of Records, whether it's Manly P. Hall or Edgar Casey that were under the paws of the Sphinx. I noticed somebody made a comment there about that. And whatever the hell it is that these things say, I mean, I attended a conference where one of the speakers said, there's a missing variable here. Because if, if you had, say, in the time of the Roman Empire, you had scholars of the Roman Empire, which, which there were extensive scholarship in the Roman Empire. But if you had scholars at the time of the Roman Empire who, who came into possession of records from lost civilizations, because the Romans used to talk about lost civilizations or else between them and the Greeks, how the hell would we even know about Atlantis? Um, but it's like, okay, in the future, you're going to have this really gnarly catastrophic event. Well, it's in their time, it's, it's thousands of years away or even hundreds of years away. I mean, we saw how long it took the human, the human uh, species to do something about the year 2000 software problem back in the late 1990s. I mean, we waited until the last damn minute. So it's like, okay, you know, a bunch of folks walking around in togas in ancient Rome who have possession of knowledge from lost civilizations and say, you're going to have this event that's going to occur. And it's like, well, but I've got plague in, in the city of Rome right now. I'd rather deal with that than worry about this problem that we may not even be around by the time it gets here. Right. Um, so whatever Thomas said, at least for the analysts of that time, they felt that it was earth shattering enough that with everything going on between the cold war. And then of course, you know, I forget if Thomas spoke before or after Kennedy had died, but we had some serious shit going on in the country between racial issues and everything else in the beginning of the Vietnam war that the decision was made by the agency that it's like this, this is just, just too much to, to have this crap out there right now. So we're going to pull it. Was there something still on the missing 50 pages? If indeed they exist, that is some sort of earth shattering revelation, not to be indelicate, I've I've already gotten a cold chill reading Graham Hancock. I don't know what the hell else could possibly be out there that has that I you never know. The other thing on a future show I need to get into is back in the eighties, uh, early nineties, uh, they were going to build a nuclear waste facility in Nevada for all of the United States waste. Yeah. The decision was made by the powers that be. All right, instead of trying to store this stuff at the nuclear power plants and or using the French technique of using irradiated water poured over molten glass, which for reasons we don't seem to understand, it lowers its radioactivity. They made the decision the hell with it. We're going to come up with a single consistent storage container and we're just going to stick all the crap out in Nevada in a place no one wants to go anyway. Um, in a future show, I'll need to get into this because what happened was is the researchers were using you know early computer software and similar as they tried to build the site and their various first attempts at constructing the facility, I wouldn't say failed, but were not ideal. And they kept finding themselves going back into the ancient world and how ancient sites were built. And of course, this led to other revelations that are straight up types of people I'm talking about. Uh, Strangely enough, the team that actually 
was working on on this facility. They were going to create a, a octagon sized or shaped structure around it. Uh, the the whole point was is they wanted to prevent future generations from going anywhere near this nuclear waste. And so the problem was is taking into account cultural and linguistic differences. How would you keep people from doing that? And they they ended up coming up with a design that looked like a crown of thorns, basically. They even got an award from the United Nations saying that that in known history, it was one of the greatest efforts by by modern and contemporary human beings to save future generations from the mistakes of our era or what have you, which always kind of struck me. So my concluding comment on this is as follows. We have a lot of strangeness going on in our world right now. Now that's easy to say. I had a friend of mine recently remind me of uh, I forget if it was Plato or who it was that in the ancient world made a made a statement about I fear for today's generation, they don't study the classics the way they used to or what have you. And, and my comment to my friend over a couple of glasses of bourbon was, yeah, have you met the World Economic Forum? I think we're a little bit beyond that right now. <laughs> um, but this is beyond COVID. This is beyond the goals around 2030. This is beyond the digital economy. Um, the last 15 years in particular have really caught my attention. And like I said, we, we will need to delve into this a little later. Friday, I'll go back to my normal earth-shattering, terrifying crap about the modern world. But um, and nor am I saying there's any truth to rumors that there's a high-speed you know, subway system that runs from Denver to Washington, D.C. or anything like that. But there are some projects going on out there for quite some time uh, who are suspicious and do exist. Um, one of the things I shared with all of you was is that during the uh, economic collapse back in, in 2008... Uh, yes, and, and thank you, Cyber Quenco. Uh, yes, there's a whole host of sites in India uh, that, uh, that because of our Western view, uh, you know, we, we're not as aware of them because we're, we're viewing the world through, through our own, our own uh, optics. Um, but uh, I mentioned to all of you on a prior show, there was this thing, I wouldn't say I discovered, it was discovered by others. I was attending a conference dealing with with government problem solving, and I met a guy who I had met at a defense conference, the one I told you all about out in Colorado Springs, hosted by AFSIA. And this guy was basically one of the main researchers for the House of Representatives. If they they needed something investigated or or looked into, he's, he's your guy. And this gentleman and I were sitting in a bar and, you know, cell phones are left in our hotel rooms and we're sitting in the back corner. He starts talking to me about it. He goes, I, I need your brain when it comes to some things. And I said, all right, what do you got going on? And he goes, well, you know that the House, you know, because the House of Representatives is the checkbook and the Senate is the lawyers. And he said the the House is trying to get into more detail about inflation just prior to 2008 and after. And I said, okay. And he goes, now, as you know, we monitor M1, M2, M3 money supplies. For those of the, you that remember your economics, that's right. cash and circulation. That's savings. That's other forms of money. Yep. But Held he by said, institutions we, and, and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. And he goes, we've got massive levels of inflation in the U.S. economy that should not exist. And I said, uh-huh. And he goes, and we can't trace where the hell it's coming from. And I said, Oh, that's this- lovely. I said, is this uh, geographically specific to certain parts of the country? And he kind of looks at me funny and he goes, why are you asking that? And I said, well, answer my question. I'll tell you. And he goes, well, as a matter of fact, it is. And I said, humor me. Are you finding um, 
And I said, when we, when we say inflation, what are we talking about? And he goes, well, um, you know, even in your neck of the country, he said, you know, you live in a pretty good neighborhood. And he said, you've, you've seen your neighbors have sheriffs outside putting notices on doors and stuff saying this, this property is being foreclosed. And I'm like, yeah, in the good neighborhoods where the good people live with the good schools. Yes, I'm very aware. And he goes, well, we've got whole neighborhoods that should have been bulldozed because statistically no one there should still have a job. But yet they're still able to pay their bills. And I said, so we've got people that are on government contracts. And he goes, a little bit more than that. And I said, oh, you mean we have people on unacknowledged special access projects? Now, for some of you who may or may not be aware what that is, in government contracting, and as I've tried to kind of walk you all through this, you've got government contracts that are very above board. You can go online and look them up, and some of them are for the Defense Department, some of them are for Homeland Security, take the whole government can't do shit out of, out of this discussion. Um, some of them are for the Department of Education, and, and they are uh, organized programs that allow the government to purchase things from approved vendors even friends of mine in the commercial space have said, if this was run a little better, this would actually be something the commercial community might want to use. And it reduces a lot of the government risk and makes sure that they've got billable pricing tables and things that are, are in the government's best interest. So if you're buying furniture, you use this. If you're buying a weapon system, you use this. But then you've got government contract vehicles that can, like the one I used to work with, that can be used for work that's classified. And classified just simply means it's classified. It's something that that we can't let the public be aware of or have it out in the open. It may deal with national defense or similar. But then you've got a level that is like God mode, which is special access projects. And now you're really off the reservation. SAPs, as they're called sometimes, and I don't mean the SAP software system uh, used in accounting. Special access projects are exactly that, special access. You can have the highest security clearance on the planet. Nobody gives a crap. Unless you're read into it, you're not even allowed to know the damn thing exists. In some cases, when government accountants and so on are tracking these things, there's just a number. I mean, I used to work on projects that had a degree of classification on them, and it was just a very vague description about what it was. You had to ask for permission if, for whatever reason, you needed to know what that project was doing to have the appropriate people say, okay, yes, we can. And when I say read you in, I mean, literally your right hand's held in the air and they, they explain to you, you're now part of this, this thing and you can't talk about what we're telling you and this, that, and the other. Special access projects are a whole other world. I mean, literally you're, I don't mean literally, I mean figuratively, but, but like you're on another planet. This, this, even people who do classified work don't necessarily get the chance to work on special access project. Special access projects don't exist. They don't exist. And they come from funding sources that, for lack of a better word, just kind of fall out of the air. I mean, I asked, I, I asked a guy I knew in government, I said, where exactly is this money coming from? I mean, you know, I was like winking a nod. I said, Department of Agriculture, where I always joke, we, we hide. The, he goes, no, those are just the classified projects nobody's supposed to know about. He goes, no. He goes, did you ever read, um, what do you call it, the book about the promise software or any of the Danny Castellaro stuff. And I'm like, actually, yes, yes, I have. And he goes, this is a level above that. He goes, the money just appears. And I said, we just insert it into the economy. And he goes, basically. And I'm like, well, that's a, that's an interesting trick. So as I'm talking to this guy at this conference, we start going through a series of places in the United States, certain U S States where I'm like neighborhoods located in this part of a certain Southern state, places located 
uh, on the border with Nevada, places in Southern Colorado, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, yes, 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 yes. And it's like, okay, so then what we've got are a whole bunch of people working on special access projects. And he's like, yeah, but the problem is it's creating inflation. And I'm like, uh-huh. And he goes, I don't think I'm being clear. It's creating inflation we're picking up in the economy. I don't just mean like, oh, we sold a few more cars in Colorado this year than we thought we would do. How much money are we looking at, man, in order for it to create inflation like that? You're talking trillions. I wouldn't say trillions, but it. Yeah, I don't want to get into the numbers. All I'm going to say is it was big. And it and it and the point the point is is the guy looked at me and he goes he goes we don't understand how we got here and I said I'll tell you how you got here and I said in 1988 summer of 88 there was a huge drought in the Midwest and I said and CNN grabbed a bunch of old folks down in Tennessee who were walking through streets and in you know foundations of buildings and a few street signs were still there of towns and things that were flooded during the Tennessee Valley Authority. And I said, for years, two generations at least, you've had people growing up in states who just know that as the whatever aquifer or mm-hmm. you know whatever body of water that's behind that dam. Yeah. But for anybody who was there, there's a whole town underneath that water. But you will never know it unless the water level recedes far enough. And I told the guy that was wouldn't say a colleague, but a guy I knew through, through my line of work, I told this guy in the back of that bar, I said, 2008 was enough of an economic occurrence. And he looks at me and he goes that the water receded enough that we could see, we could see the remnants of the town. And I said, basically you had enough of a contraction in economic activity in the United States that this spending became more apparent. And he, he kind of looked at me and he goes, shit, (laughs) he goes, what do you recommend? And I said, my recommendation is what we always do in these situations. I said, you go back to your superiors and tell them that the data is inconclusive and you need more money. And the minute you tell them you need more money, they're going to say, uh, no, that's all right. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just let it sit here. And so that storyline I just laid out to all of you is just one of the things out there that has been kind of going on for years. Now, I know some folks would automatically say, well, that's classified government research, most probably on weapon systems. And given the kinds of money we spend and how expensive that kind of research can be, you know, suborbital aircraft and similar, yeah, yeah, that, that would be a huge amount of money. There's, there's no, and, and it's not just the $500 hammer and the $100 toilet seat. And by the way, the $500 hammer, there's a reason why that happened. And it isn't, it, it's easy to tell the public, well, we screwed up. There's more going on with the $500 hammer that we're going to get into today. But my point is, it's a lot of money. And I don't know that that amount of money is enough to justify highly advanced uh, military research. Now, I'm not saying it answers this question. I'm not saying it even relates to what today's show was about. I'm just saying it is an anomaly. It did pop up. I at least personally am aware of this kind of stuff going on. Um, But whether or not it relates to what we're talking about, I, I don't know. There's just a lot of unknowns. But on this particular topic of, of the unknown ancient world, we'll get back into this again later, later this year. Uh, there's a number of other things about this we could talk about, and we'll probably need to, uh, if I can't, I'll find some of the, the pictures and the design drawings and stuff of the, of the structure out in Nevada they were going to use to store nuclear waste. But the nuclear waste facility research was, it was interesting because it, it 
Uh, it dovetailed into another topic, which is when they built Cancun, how did that all come about? Well, the the main building of the Cancun resorts and things in Mexico was based on, and you have to remember the era, very early computer software programs that were developed to try and determine, okay, if we're going to build a major luxury resort area in the world, where should we build it? Uh, best, most consistent temperatures, um, availability of labor, the list goes on. Well, the the answer that you know, both researchers and the computers spit out in the 1970, late 1970s was the region we know as Cancun in Mexico. That's why all that, that building took place there. But then a group of anthropologists and archaeologists got hold of the same software and said, you know, hey, do you guys mind if we borrow this for a different question or a different kind of data points we want to enter into the system? And they submitted a series of questions saying that if in the past 10,000 years I had to build something that could withstand the ravages of time, where should I build it? And what the software came up with was the Giza Plateau. And that's a fact. <laughs> wow. So, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get into this again. We'll get into this again. And especially with some of the stuff Jet's been doing, I thought, okay, I'm going to put my big toe in the water here and kind of do a, a primer for everybody on this, on this topic. But we'll be... Uh, We'll be back on Friday uh, with Vellis with my normal government overthrows and Jeff Epstein sort of topic matter. Uh, we'll, we'll finally we'll finally get into the o- the Obama topic a bit. Uh, Patrick Ryan, by the way, has updated his graphics that I showed you a few weeks ago, which which <laughs> talked about frightening. Uh, we'll get into that uh, a bit, and then some of the website stuff I'm going to cover. Um, will be right up the alley of a friend of ours on the show here. Uh, I've got a number of different sites I want to show you about how to both research how to do it and where the actual websites are for leveraging the postal inspector, how you file complaints against specific uh, agencies or their personnel working with the attorney general. Uh, We'll get into a bit more on the Sussman trial with Durham and Dr. Mary's monkey and probably some updates on the political situation in Turkey because that continues to to get weird. But anywho, thank you all for uh, joining us today. V, did you have any, any final stuff? No, no, no. You did great, man. I mean, you ran the gambit here. Uh, great job on your end. Uh, folks, again, if you haven't gotten a chance to do it, uh, or when you get a chance to do it, go back and listen to the show. Take some notes. Do some web searching because there's a chock full of great information here because it is pertinent to today. And there's a reason why our past is hidden from us for a reason. It's incredible, man. I think it, I think it really gives the origin of who we are as, as a species on this planet. Well, and who we're, who we're trying to rediscover we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very well said. And with that being said, folks, we are at the end of the show. Uh, make sure you subscribe, like, comment, share. And again, we'll be back tomorrow with Cuss with Gus. And I think uh, we have Matthew Aradon tomorrow. Uh, today or tomorrow? T- tomorrow, because you couldn't do today. And okay. Friday, Andrew Martinov, get ready for that right after Vela's. Uh, actually, way later after Vela's. It's going to be at 3 p.m. So lock and load, and have a great day, folks. Cheers.